Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I'm Dr. Robert Childs. For over a century, Italian-American Catholics in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, have been celebrating the Dance of the Giglio. I spoke with Dr. Alyssa Maldonado Estrada about her six years of work within this community and her fantastic ethnographic study that resulted, her book, Lifeblood of the Parish. We talked about her broadening our ideas about what constitutes devotion. We talked about the rich history of this community and we talked about their endurance in the 21st century despite the challenges of gentrification. They are like they're resistant in some way, but gentrification also helps them create and tell these sacred stories about themselves. So they're like in the 1940s, Robert Moses was trying to take us down. Um, and now they're building buildings up to the sky and we're still here um, and we are going to survive. And this feast is going to be the engine that allows us to do that. Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I'm really excited to be joined today by Dr. Alyssa Maldonado Estrada. Alyssa is an assistant professor of religion at Kalamazoo College in Michigan, and she is the author of an absolutely fantastic uh, new book, Lifeblood of the Parish, uh, which is already put out. It is a fantastic uh, and sensitive and really thoroughly analytical ethnographic study of Italian-American men's devotion in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn. And I am so excited to talk to you about this uh, wonderful work of both history and contemporary analysis. Um, and so first of all, welcome, Alyssa, to our program. Thank you for having me. One of the many things that I really enjoyed about your book is the writing. Uh, you really draw us into this world that, as you'll tell us in, in a little while, uh, you came to be a part of yourself and really uh, were in for, for many years. Um, and the sensory uh, nature, the details of your writing is, is just uh, so captivating. Uh, so I'm wondering if you're willing uh, if to get things started, for those of our viewers who've never been a part of this, if you could uh, bring us to uh, the Dance of the Giglio, bring us to this festival on a summer night in Brooklyn. 
Okay, perfect. I love this question. So <clears throat> imagine you come out of the L train station on Bedford Ave in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, Bedford Ave is kind of like cool, trendy shops and boutiques. You walk a few blocks and you come upon a <clears throat> orange brick church, kind of unassuming. It's not a grand church edifice or anything like that, but it becomes quite grand um, during two weeks in July and the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and Dance of Vigilio. So what you would see is streets around this church lined with carnival games, lined with all sorts of food. Naturally, it smells like sausage and peppers and different kinds of grilled meats. Um, there are also carnival rides. There's a Ferris wheel and different like, you know, just lights flashing. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, it has like a old New York carnival-esque feel. Um, so lots of people milling about the streets. But from the corner of North 8th and Havemeyer, if you look down the street, you would see this kind of huge tower. This tower is called the Giglio. It's 70 feet tall. It's made of aluminum and the face of it, the facade is made of wood and paper mache. This huge tower has archways and molded angels and saints on it. It's painted in all sorts of different colors and outfitted with lights. So I'd say the Giglio is kind of the exclamation point on this um, community. And what happens during the feast in addition to more traditional things like processions with a statue of Our Lady of Mount Carmel or the Virgin Mary through the neighborhood. There's a shrine you can visit, but the most spectacular thing that happens is the dance of the Giglio when around 120 men gather under the poles of the Giglio and lift it kind of up and down the streets in front of the church in this huge devotional spectacle. One day during the feast, this happens at night, that's called the night lift, but this normally happens during the day. So sometimes, you know, New York in July, it's a sweltering like 95 degrees sometimes and, you know, the men are lifting um, this Giglio. The other, there's another structure too, there's a boat that gets lifted in addition to the Giglio. And this is kind of a grand hagiographical drama and celebration of a saint called Saint Paulinus, uh, aka San Paulino, um, and he is the patron saint of Nola, Italy. And Nola, Italy is where many of the early Italian immigrants who came to Williamsburg, where they hailed from, um, and it's a kind of small town in the Campania region uh, outside of Naples. So yeah, all those colors and just like this Technicolor Ferris wheel and the, the Giglio. Um, it's a lot. You can't, you cannot, you cannot miss it when you're walking through the streets um, in July. That's fabulous. And um, they've been doing that or something like that for a long time. Can you, can you bring us to the sort of history of how long they've been doing it and, and how this community was built in, in Williamsburg? Yeah, so I'll start off with the church that's associated with it and then go back to the Giglio. Absolutely. So 
The Shrine Church of Our Lady of Mount Carmel was established in 1887. So this was the first Italian national parish in the neighborhood um, before, you know, Brooklyn was annexed to the city of New York in 1898. So Williamsburg, Greenpoint, Bushwick were all part of what was known as Brooklyn's Eastern District. So Italian immigrants were, many of them were coming from NOLA, most of the Italians in Williamsburg did not have a parish to call their own. Lots of journalists likened the Eastern District to like a crime-ridden, dark, lowly sort of um, neighborhood, right? And there was a pastor named Peter Sapinara. Peter Sapinara um, was ordained in Italy, came to New York City, got permission from the diocese to found an Italian national parish. Um, journalists celebrated him. I read lots of articles about him in the Brooklyn um, Daily Eagle. So Peter Sapinara apparently went door to door, door, to door in Williamsburg um, begging for money and fundraising to open um, this parish. Eventually he was successful and the parish did open. Um, and this was a moment of pride because before that, Italians, again, they had no place of their own to worship in their own language. So they had apparently been using the basement of an Episcopal church. They had been using some other um, neighborhood churches as well. So when the Church of Our Lady of Mount Carmel opened up, that also inaugurated um, the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. I I didn't get to write a lot about Sabanara um, in the book, but I think, I don't know, he's kind of a celebrated figure, but also a little bit of a tragic or a tragic comic um, figure too. So some stories I didn't get to include, there were different, you know, he was going through lots of New York City type dramas. In 1890, um, Sapanara, you know, he's a priest. He was swindled out of his life savings of $3,000. Um, he had lots of different, <laughs> lots of different dramas until in 1926, he was waiting for a train at Grand Central and dropped dead right there <laughs> in Grand Central Station while waiting for the train, um, but had done his life's work, you know, of establishing this parish. So early on, again, the, the, the Italians at this church celebrated the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Separately, there was a mutual aid society, the Society of San Paulino, um, where Nolani immigrants celebrated St. Paulinus, and it was with them that the Giglio was built and danced in Williamsburg. So that the earliest evidence that we have of the feast in Williamsburg is from uh, the Dance of the Giglio in Williamsburg is from 1903. So this is kind of quite a long time um, that the Giglio has been dancing there. In Nola, so Nola in Italy, they actually dance eight, eight Giglio. Well, they're called G, G so plural, but they dance eight of these um, structures. Each of them are made by a different guild um, in the town. And the earliest known dates for that are from the early 1500s. So quite, quite a long ritual. Um, San Paulino, though, he was a bishop in the fifth century in Nola. So his kind of mythology um, and the legend of San Paulino goes back much further. 
But it wasn't until the 1950s that the Giglio kind of came under the authority of the church. And so now Our Lady of Mount Carmel and San Paulino are both celebrated in July together during the annual feast. So this was a central part of this growing community from very early on. Uh, how did it sit with the actual official church authorities? Yeah, so I think from the very beginning, like obviously this feast was sponsored by and put on by the church. But from the beginning, there were tensions between the Italian way of doing devotion and I don't know, the, the propriety that the church was expecting and desiring. So in the early 20th century, church officials, pastors throughout um, New York City, and especially in Brooklyn, they were wringing their hands over some of the raucousness of these feasts. Um, there were lots of newspaper articles about Italians having nightly bang bangs and um, all of the the loud nature of all of this. Um, so early on, we see in years like 1902, 1905, there were skirmishes between Italians celebrating the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and police who were trying to confiscate their fireworks, trying to calm things down. Um, and so we see early kind of histories of riots or people trying to break into the police station on Bedford Ave to steal back the fireworks for the feast. Um, what Another thing that happened was in 1908, lots of different priests from different parishes in Brooklyn came together to kind of sign a letter and say they weren't going to authorize the use of fireworks during the feast. There was so much of so much worry over fireworks. Um, so because of this, they found the way Italians celebrated the saints, especially in the in the summertime, to be a burlesque on the spiritual side of religion, to not be in accordance with liturgical norms. Um, so we see there's some there's some tension. I would say these tensions are kind of eased by mid-century when it's the 1950s and all of these different kinds of feasts are no longer in the hands of mutual aid societies, at least not in, um, not in this parish in Williamsburg. So some of those tensions ease. But I think even today we see lots of that same playfulness, some of that sensory excess that was uh, a problem early in the 20th century. It is now just very much part of the normal fabric of the feast. And it seems to me that one of the great analytical contributions of your work is perhaps to suggest that the concerns of the church authorities may have been misguided. Um, you write that uh, religion can be raucous and playful. Religion can be about revelry and friendship. Devotion can be found in tattooed skin and wearing costumes and reenacting the lives of saints and in mundane acts like painting and woodworking. Um, so maybe uh, explain how this history, this culture uh, is also uh, devotion and, the, and the, both the performative and playful nature of this and, and how you sort of interpret it. Yeah, I love this question. So one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to get scholars and also general readers to be less precious about devotionalism and 
less precious about what they consider religious practice. So if anybody, if I'm, you know, if I'm like, oh, I want you to think of a Catholic devoted to the saints, maybe likely they would think of a woman, maybe they would think of a woman kneeling in a chapel, looking upon a statue. Uh, maybe they would think of somebody praying the rosary. This would all seem very pious, right? <laughs> um, and I think the feast shows us something different. As, as I told you all earlier, the feast has this kind of party atmosphere. What you see is not like not always just people going to novenas or people going to masses. You'll see guys drinking beers, lifting the gilio, doing this sort of manual, physical, like very much embodied labor. The other thing that you'll see um, during the feast are costumes. So there is a role. Um, there's a man who plays a role called the Turk. Um, and this is part of San Paulino's hagiography. Um, and the Turk rides in kind of a boat that meets the Giglio and dresses up in taffeta, lame, feathers, rhinestones. And so you see the juxtaposition of these two sorts of masculine embodiment. So you have all the lifters, uh, the lifters of the Giglio, they're all wearing matching t-shirts, largely cargo shorts. You'll see their tattoos on their arms. And then you see the flamboyance and kind of aesthetic excess um, and Orientalism of the Turk in his, you know, hair and pants, his beard, his sword. Um, so there's playfulness in kind of the bodily practices. And then, and we can talk about this later too, um, drinking goes along with uh, processions, goes along with all of these more traditional or expected acts of devotion. And so I wouldn't say it's necessarily impropriety, but there is a sort of Catholic irreverence at the feast, this like playful nature. It's not always just buttoned up, go to mass, do the rosary um, and leave. There is, there is a sort of flexibility in what counts as Catholic here because everything is located under the umbrella of I do this because I love the saints. I do this all because I love um, my parish. I do this to honor my um, family. And these are, of course, all like embodied actions and they're performative. You can see them on the streets. They're done for, they're done for others as much as they are done um, as individual acts of devotion. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting, you mentioned uh, the men are in cargo shorts and so you are able to see a lot of their tattoos and and you suggest that uh, their tattoos are not uh, individualistic as some people might think but rather a part of a, a sense of community and you suggest a, an act of devotion as well. Yeah so I don't know if I expected to find these tattoos when I first started studying um, when I first started studying Catholic devotion but it is you can't deny the like existence of tattoos as even part of the decorative environment of the feast. So all, again, all of these male limbs are on display and on these limbs, in addition to, you know, your typical tribal tattoos and other things, you see very Catholic tattoos. So uh, tattoos of the Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, tattoos of saints like Padre Pio and 
most interestingly, and of course, uniquely to this parish, um, are tattoos of the Giglio. So this tower, right? Some men even have tattoos of multiple Giglios. So they'll have a Giglio on their forearm. They'll have a Giglio on their calf. So I think more recently, the literature on tattoos have been like, okay, these are kind of consumer products. These are individual these are individual marks. These are exteriorizations of an inner self. Um, scholars too liken tattoos to texts that can be read, they communicate, they're readable. They function maybe like a signature or like a narrative or even like an archive for narratives. Um, but when I, you know, met these guys and started asking them about their tattoos and listening to the stories they would tell, they wouldn't tell necessarily stories about their own individual belief. I would say these men almost never talk about God. They almost never talk about Jesus and they almost never talk about belief. Um, what they do talk about is the kind of intense and meaningful bonds they form with other men at the feast. So I should say that lifting lifting the Giglio is not just something people do in passing in July. This is something that people dedicate their men in particular, dedicate their entire lives to being part of this community, to lifting the Giglio and to rising through the ranks of the feast hierarchy. So it'll probably be important for me to tell you all what this feast hierarchy is to clarify <laughs> later. So the Giglio, this tower, that's, this is the tower that you can see on the um, front cover of the book. And then this is the boat that I was talking about that the Turk rides in. Um, so, the Giglio is lifted by lifters. So between the boat and the Giglio, there are around 300. There are around 300 lifters. There are lieutenants that command crews of lifters. So these lieutenants, this is kind of the next step up in the hierarchy. So lieutenants kind of make sure everything is moving smoothly, that every man knows which way and direction to go. Um, they, you know, keep everything running. The next step up and the highest positions of honor are those of the capos. The capos are men who have dedicated their entire lives to this parish and producing this feast. And often it takes decades to rise up to the position of capo. Sometimes with five or six decades under, um, under his belt, a man can become number one capo. So the number one capo essentially is the man of honor in, during the feast, he usually holds uh, this position for one or two years. So the capo sometimes gets to decide the design or color scheme of the Giglio. The capo is picked up on processions throughout the neighborhood. So his home, his family are particularly honored. People wear t-shirts with his name on um, his name on them. So the other thing the capo does is choose the music and he literally commands the lifters. Capos often have fedoras and canes and they tell the lifters how to move and it's the lieutenant's job to relay all of these commands from the capo. So this, this has to do with tattoos, I promise. So essentially men, men can rise up through these ranks by showing their dedication to the parish. And they do this through labor, through spending nights, weekends, um, working to produce the feast. So if anybody was walking through Williamsburg in July, they would see the feast for two weeks and then, and then it's over. What you don't see is that most of the months throughout the year, 
there are men meeting inside the church, inside the parish, in the lower hall, in the basement, working on processional routes, designing t-shirts, building the Giglio and trying to make all of this happen. And it is in those spaces um, that men kind of prove their worth and prove that they should um, be promoted to these ranks. So as I was talking to men about these tattoos, I started hearing about all of these different spaces of labor. And one of the spaces um, that I started hearing most about was the parish basement. So I'm talking a literal the basement in the church. And I'll, I'll say more about this space later. Um, it became a very special space during my, um, during my field work. So lots of men work together in the basement, building and painting the Giglio. So when I started asking them about their tattoos, they wouldn't say, oh, you know, I have a big devotion to St. Paulinus. Oh, you know, I really, it's because I love Mount Carmel so much. They would say, they maybe would say things like that, but they would say other things. Um, they would say, you know, this is the Giglio uh, from 2005 when I worked in the basement for the first time. And would they would tell me stories about building molds out of chicken wire or like jokes they would say in the basement. And so largely these tattoos were story, like they, they were generating stories about the relationships between men. Um, and so I thought that was so, that was so fascinating. These like intense bonds of love, affection, and labor are kind of stored in these tattoos. The other thing that um, was fascinating to me was that tattoos are not, they're not just flat, you know, they're not just texts. Um, I, I wanna think about tattoos as objects, like they have a certain power, they do something, they mediate something. Um, and so I started to think about tattoos as sacramental. And so there's one, there's one man that helped me, that helped me kind of theorize this. His name was Joe and he has a tattoo of Our Lady of Mount Carmel on his forearm. So Joe told me the reason he got this tattoo is because he worked in a hospital and he wasn't allowed to wear his scapular. I think I have a scapular here. Okay. Scapular. This one's a little like worn, um, but this is a sacramental object that is typically like worn like a necklace around the breast and back. Um, and, you know, it's representative of devotion to Our Lady of Mount Carmel. So Joe would typically wear his scapular, but in his hospital job for sanitary reasons, he couldn't. So because he couldn't wear his scapular, he got a tattoo of Our Lady of Mount Carmel on his forearm. And he said that he got it so she would always be with him. So the tattoo that's on his skin, that's ink on his own body is kind of mediating a broader presence. It's some, it's some other kind of channel. It's also efficacious because it's providing protection. Um, and so I would like to think of these as sacramentals they're doing, they're doing something. They're not necessarily authorized by the church or blessed by a priest the way a scapular or a rosary or some other um, devotional object might be, but they're doing something. The last thing I'll say about tattoos um, is that they make the Catholic male body at the feast, they kind of map on Catholic and devotional identity. They map on um, these different relationships, relationships like father, you know, relationship between sons and fathers, relationships between mentors, relationships to friends. Um, and I think tattoos 
kind of also express and produce a certain sort of man at the feast. So you see this man is kind of willing to give his body, give his labor, give his time. And speaking to the permanence of tattoos, but also kind of the, the lifelong nature of being in this community, um, they're willing to give their lives to this feast. And I think the, that fleshiness really matters. Um, the like muscular form really matters because we know they're lifting the Giglio. So yeah, their tattoos are, they're doing things. They're not just representational or symbolic. It's really enlightening the way that, that you describe it. And it's interesting how they are devotional as well as generational in nature, these tattoos and a lot of this. Um, and while we're uh, at the party in the street, there's also a, a children's version of this, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I found that interesting. Yeah. So one of the things that's so fascinating um, about the feast is this intergenerational quality. So for everything that grown men can do at the feast, there's kind of a, like a miniature corollary for children, girls too, but mostly young boys. Um, so there is, you know, full-size Giglio that gets lifted during the dance of the Giglio. Before the, before Giglio Sunday, when this ritual happens, um, there's the dance of the children's Giglio. So literally like a, a miniature Giglio that's also produced and made in the basement. So lots of children, I would say really little kids do it, but maybe ages like four to 11, something around there, um, dress up like lifters. They also, you know, they have the little lifters t-shirts, the little bandanas, the little hats, and they get under the poles of the Giglio, um, the children's Giglio, and kind of learn the embodied practices of lifting. This is fascinating because you'll see little boys, especially kind of mimicking, mimicking the body language and movements of the lifters. Like they'll pretend to be winded or they'll like, you know, heave the gilio, even though they're getting, they're getting help. They're getting help with it. Um, and so I think we could see the way masculinity starts to be inculcated from a very young age at the feast. And it is this pedagogical material process. You dress up like a lifter. So you look like a man, you carry the Giglio, the way you see men doing, you learn to sing the songs. There are also, and I'm glad I explained the hierarchy earlier. There are also little capos. So little boys, fedoras, tiny canes, little button downs, khakis, who command the children's gilio. Um, granted, since the late 90s, little girls have also been able to um, lift the children's gilio. There have been little girl capos as well. Um, but I will say that largely most of these positions of honor, they're all reserved for men. So while little girls are part of the feast early on, that kind of tapers off and phases out um, as they become teenagers. The other role that children can occupy is that of sailors. So they get to ride inside the boat and they dress up kind of like the Turk does in matching outfits. They wield swords as well. Um, so yeah, there are miniatures everywhere. Um, so this is 
this is an early kind of socialization process that I would say is also, it's, it's a gendered and gendering process. And it's also, I think the very way that children become and feel Catholic within this community. Typically we think about, you know, Catholicism and pedagogy were like, oh yes, the sacraments and CCD classes. But here we see um, kind of a different, a different sort of texture, but also a developmental process. Um, now you mentioned a moment ago that the ways that you sort of ascend in this hierarchy is not just showing up for a couple of weeks in July uh, and having the brawn to help lift this thing, but also it's, it's a year long devotion. And a lot of that is going on in spaces that we might not immediately think of, like the basement. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, you spend a lot of time in the basement. You describe the basement, uh, in, once again, quite evocatively. Uh, take us to the basement and, uh, and take us there with you as well. Okay. Yeah. So I will say, when I first started studying this community, you know, you can't, again, you can't see from the outside where all the planning takes place. So early on in my field work, I, I would say my first year, um, I would go to feast planning meetings. So these meetings would take place in the parish's lower hall, kind of looks like a public school lunchroom kind of place. There used to be a bowling alley there back in the day. Um, but yeah, so I spent lots of my time there. And in my first year, I never really went to the basement, but I, I had heard, you know, I had heard stories about it. Um, and I will say too, that all of these spaces are largely homosocial spaces. Most of the time I was the only woman, um, in these spaces, in the feast meetings and also, um, in the basement. So my way into the basement, um, again, I had heard all of these stories about building the Giglio down there. I had been asking, um, you know, some of the men that had formed friendships with, I was like, Hey, can I go? Do you think I can go see what you do in the basement? take some pictures, take some notes. And they're like, yeah, sure. Um, I get a text message before, I think it, it, it was like right before I went to the basement. I get a text message um, and one of the guys, he asked me, he was like, do you know, do you know how to paint? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I took some art classes. Like I know how to mix colors and stuff. So I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, I get down into the basement um, and I'm watching as the men are making Giglio pieces out of paper mache. So, you know, gloves, newsprint, glue, all that making, um, making paper mache. So one of the men comes in and he's like, hey, do you know how to paint? Could you paint this sacred heart? You know, it's a mold of the sacred heart of Jesus. Could you paint this for us? And I'm like, do you? do you really want me to do this? Um, and it was, it kind of opened up this entire realm and space of field work and practice for me. So what does the basement look like, right? The basement, you essentially, you go down this little ramp. It's like a side door inside um, the church. And it has all of the kind of refuse you might imagine, uh, refuse and like extra stuff a church might have. So on all of the shelves are like tipped over statues of Jesus, tipped over statues of St. Jude. Everything is covered with dust. They have broken fingers. And so the basement is nothing like you would imagine a chapel to be. If in a chapel, saints are in positions of honor, they have votive candles in front of them. Um, everything is lit well. In the basement is kind of the underworld of this, where 
these objects that might be treated reverently upstairs are in all states of disarray and disrepair. So there are all of these ducks, of course, and you see, you know, the crouching figures of the nativity scene. Um, there are statues in kind of different states of undress. Um, yeah, so all, all sorts of things like this. It's also a kind of, you can tell that the men own and command this space. So there's like, you know, people's signatures scrawled on the wall, posters from Feast Pass. Um, there are also kind of strata of different paint cans, <laughs> all the different layers of paint and colors of paint that the Giglio has been co colored in um, throughout the year and lots of, throughout the years actually. And of course, lots of power tools. So there's a big, like a whirring table saw down there. Um, so all of this stuff that's very practical that now that you hear it, you're like, of course a church would have a space like this, but this is not a space that we typically would go into to find meaningful religious practice or anything um, like that. So I started spending lots of time in the basement. That year, there was kind of a vacuum of, uh, or like an absence of volunteers, so young men who were available to paint the Giglio. So in that in that absence. And after a year of field work, I, could, I had kind of already proved um, that I was committed to this community in all sorts of ways. I think I also proved that I was trustworthy. I think I proved that I could hang. Um, and so, you know, they asked me to paint the saints on the Giglio. So some of the paint, so I would paint the Sacred Heart. There was a Saint Anthony, there was a Saint Rita, there was a Saint Joseph. And so I kind of imagined the basement too, and I argue this in the book, to be another one of these pedagogical spaces. Um, it's where men form relationships with the saints, where they learn um, their hagiographies, they learn their stories and how to represent the saints to others. So for Catholics, you know, you can see a saint and you're like, okay, I know because they're wearing this color. I know because they're holding lilies. I know because they're holding a certain book or, you know, because they look a certain way. Um, they're able to identify a saint. So I would say that I underwent this pedagogical process while I was in the basement. The men would bring me printouts or prayer cards and they would say, can you paint this blank white paper mache mold um, to look like uh, this saint? Um, so we'd spend lots of time in the basement working on the Giglio, joking together. Um, and I kind of learned that the basement was just as important as the sanctuary, was just as important um, as mass. This was the place where men spent months and hours and years of their time and where they really demonstrated their love of the feast, the saints, and their service um, to the parish. It's really great because the, the some of the conversations you have with them, you it just expresses in their own words this sort of, as you put it, it's, it's a space of reverence and irreverence, right? And it might not be um, orthodox or official or dogmatic, and yet there's a humility there, that there's, a, there's, a, there's an authenticity to this devotion that really comes through in, in your discussions with them. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is, you, you've noted several times, this is an overwhelmingly a, a, a homosocial space, um, and you entered in um, and you became the artist. Uh, some of them 
maybe half jokingly uh, thought you were doing a psychology experiment on them because they, they must be just kind of too crazy for reality. Um, some of them uh, challenged you uh, and ultimately uh, you really were able to become a part of this, uh, this homosocial space. Um, and it seems as though it, it was pretty natural. And you, 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 at some point in the book, you actually expressed some surprise at how this was able to work. Um, if you don't mind talking a bit about that, it's interesting. Yeah. And so I guess, I don't know, I didn't expect or I didn't know what this community of all men would make of a what I, you know, I was much younger when I started my field work. Um, I didn't know what they would make of my presence. And so early on, um, I think I had, I had to prove myself in all, in all sorts of ways, the way you do when you're building any kind of relationship, you have to prove yourself as trustworthy. Um, so in my first, the first few times I went to feast meetings, they would say things like, oh, you know, there's a girl here. Don't curse around her, cover her ears. Um, or, you know, they would say, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't say this because she's a feminist or they expected, I don't know, they expected pushback on my end or they expected critique on my end. Um, but they also knew what it was like to be studied. They, people have written dissertations on this community before. Um, every year I felt like there was a new documentary filmmaker kind of in and out. They're always interviewed by reporters. So these men are, they're, they, they're good at PR. Like they're very studied. They know how to deal with um, scrutiny. So in the beginning, when they were like tiptoeing around me, I had to be like, you know, listen, I'm not a square. I'm, you know, I'm here to learn about you guys. I'm here to find out about the feast. I care about this. I just want to see what this means to you on your own terms. So I feel like just being very, being very like overt and straightforward um, was important and showing on my own part that I was committed to this thing. So I would say in my first year of research, I worked in, you know, I worked in the shrine. I was like selling candles or toting boxes or helping out wherever I could. And after that first year, I think of proving myself that I was kind of in this for the long run. I wasn't like a, maybe a journalist that would come for a day and leave. Um, I think that helped establish a sort of trust. I think I also had a skill set that they needed. They literally needed somebody that knew um, how to paint. Uh, I think also that I had built, at that point I had built friendships. Um, and so some of these things were, it was surprising to me that they would let a girl or a woman um, paint Vigilio. But what I learned from this is that labor labor matters, like the commitment, the hours you're willing to spend. And for me, I found that gender boundaries were flexible. Maybe they wouldn't be this flexible for women in the community, but because I was, I was an outsider, I wasn't related to any of them. I didn't have those relational connections. So eventually my time, eventually my time doing that work would end. I don't think I would be a disruptor there forever. Um, and we can talk about later my like enduring relationships here too. So I think all of that enabled me to 
work in the basement, um, make really very real friendships there and also become part of the kind of like joking environment of um, that space as well. And so working in the basement opened up so many other avenues. Um, so once people saw that I was committed to helping out with the feast and also pushed me in lots of ways, like maybe as an ethnographer, I was like, okay, I'm going to be taking notes. I'm going to be like with my notebook. No, like they're like, hey, you're going to take pictures of this. You're going to paint this or why are you just sitting there? Um, then you realize like, okay, I can't be idle. Like I actually, I have to work. And that I think made the ethnographic work that much, um, that much deeper and also showed me the way, I don't know, masculinity was functioning in this community and how it worked and was constructed alongside um, devotional practice and Catholic identity. So yeah, there was, you, you walk into a community of all men and you expect there to be rigidity in terms of gender boundaries. But then in my case, I found that there was that flexibility, which was a surprise and kind of a delight for research. Well, I'll say, if, if I may, I, I think it really led to wonderful scholarship. Um, I, it, it was fascinating to me. You're there for many years, and it's it, exactly as you described. There's constantly these random, not random, but these camera crews showing up, and they all want to document these people, reporters, uh, people making documentaries, and, and they've been going through this apparently for generations now. And it seems like for a lot of these outsiders, whether it's a, a THD student or a camera crew, the, these these men are almost an object of curiosity and, and sort of, oh, well, look at the way things used to be in Williamsburg. We can talk about that uh, a bit later. Um, but I, I feel like the, the way that you were able to become part of this community really allowed you um, to pro provide a more humane and nuanced depiction and sensitive uh, depiction of their world. You said something uh, in the introduction that um, I really uh, thought was profound, uh, talking about the aliveness of their world. And, and you said that aliveness means that often real lives exceed academic jargon or theoretical language. I forego some of that here in order to tell the stories of these men to fully represent them in all their seriousness and levity uh, when they're sympathetic and unsympathetic. And I'll just say that I, I think it was fantastic that both the methodology and the writing really did precisely what you had set out to do. On, on the one hand, as somebody who uh, minored in sociology many years ago as an undergrad, uh, it brought back fond memories to come across names I hadn't seen in over a decade, like George Zimmel and, um, and Irving Goffman and these writers. I was like, oh, I remember that guy. Uh, but but um, it, it was even more compelling when you told these stories and then brought them back in order to explain uh, what you what you were what you were finding and so uh, again I, I think it's great uh, the way you entered into the basement um, and you also note that there are other rooms behind the scenes where this work's going on right um, and so another place you entered uh, was the money room um, and I think that's where you get the title right yeah, so I'll, oh, I, I love the money room. So I'll talk about this. I'm going to say one more note about ethnography too, um, because I didn't mention the psychology experiment thing. Working with 
working with people who can speak back and critique you and jab at you is a kind of unique thing. Um, and so in the basement, I did, I became the, they dubbed me the artist. So they called me the artist, but sometimes they termed me Jane Goodall. They were like, listen, you are Jane Goodall. You're, we're the apes. You're studying us. So they were, they knew, they were like very cognizant of that ethnographic relationship. They were cognizant of the ethnographic gaze and being observed. And so while, again, like we, I made very real friendships there that I still have to this day, but there was that extra layer of, we know you're writing about us. Um, and so the basement and the money room, which I'll say, talk about in a second, I wanted to make sure that I just dwelled in the spaces they found meaningful. I didn't just want to see what was on the outside or the kind of stock answers they might give about why, why they do this. Um, and I think just spending time with them wherever they were mattered. Um, and it helped me see a drastically different uh, view of devotion than I think we've seen before in the literature on Catholics. So the money room. During the feast, I mentioned, you know, there are carnival rides, there are games, there are food stands. So there are lots of places to consume and buy things, right? So there's what they call a beer trap. Um, so in the beer trap, you literally could go buy Stella's and Brooklyn Brewery and little wine bottles. Um, and, you know, parishioners are working selling the beer. So there's a beer trap. There is downstairs in the church, there is a cafe where you can buy all sorts of Italian pastries and drinks. Um, there are also especially more recently, games of chance and gambling tables. There's a flea market. Um, there's again, the shrine where you can buy scapulars and candles and rosaries and all of your devotional needs. So this all goes to say, there are lots of different hubs for making money at the feast. All of this money needs to be accounted for. And it's also important to say that the feast is the biggest fundraiser for the parish. It brings in hundreds of thousands of dollars um, every year on a good year. Um, and so again, like people are literally coming and spending dollars there and all these dollars need to go somewhere. So there's a room called the money room. The money room is where all the money from the beer, the shrine, ride tickets, like literally the tickets um, that you can, you know, get to go on the Ferris wheel and other rides where the ride ticket money goes, um, where novena collections, mass collections, all this money winds up in one space. And there's a crew, dubbed the money crew, that counts all of that money, accounts for it, make sure and make sure everything's running smoothly. So after I, after my first year field work, got on the basement crew, I was asked to take photos um, during the feast. And I was also recruited to be on the money crew. Again, I think trust, friendship, all of that is very important to how this was possible. So with another crew of parishioners, I would literally sit around during the feast, tallying up dollars and cents. Um, and one of the reasons I think this is really, this is really important is that first of all, devotion, devotion is good business. I don't think this is necessarily a new 21st century thing. I think this has been the case for a long time. Um, and the other thing too, is that 
we know, we know churches need money to survive. We know money is central to institutions, but I think often we think about money and its non-material dimensions as like budgets or finances. And this feast calls on us to think about like literally the nitty gritty, like counting dollars, running them through a money counter machine, like quarters, everything. And the tactile dimensions of that. So there's a man that runs the entire um, fundraising operation. Uh, his name is John. You can read about him in the book. Um, John is such, he's such a character. Um, but John sees all of this not as secondary to his Catholic identity or his devotion. He sees all of this as religious work, as work of the utmost importance, even as a calling. Um, and the guys in the basement kind of say the same thing. Like, this is, this is my mission. This is the thing I'm meant to do and supposed to do. And so it calls on us to see, okay, maybe it's not, maybe it's not prayer all the time. Maybe it is um, doing spreadsheets or, you know, making saint molds out of Home Depot and Dollar Tree materials um, and how all of that is devotional practice. It is maintaining men's connections to Catholicism, to the church, to the saints, and most importantly, I think for me, maintaining their connections to each other and these kind of generational sticky bonds to this parish and to this neighborhood. So one thing I'll say too um, about money and the money room is that because this feast is again the, or has been um, the fundraising engine for this parish. Um, and because Williamsburg is a super gentrified neighborhood, um, the bottom line, the bottom line matters. Um, money matters to keeping the doors of the parish open. And so there's this constant idea at the feast among the men, among the pastors that survive, like the success of the feast means that survival is at stake if the feast is not successful. So it's often in these conversations, which would take place during feast planning meetings, um, where the pastor would talk about the feast as the lifeblood of the parish or this kind of, this engine, I think a financial engine, but also a memory, like a memory engine, a human engine, like uh, producing generations. Um, so yeah, there's all of that is kind of um, tied up. And I would say that broader goal of keeping the parish alive um, and keeping this institution that is beloved afloat is what makes all of this labor meaningful. And for me, what I think masculinizes any kind of um, work men do on behalf of the feast to plan it and on behalf of the church. It's interesting because <clears throat> when you entered into uh, their archival memory, it sounds like this has been something they've been talking about for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So money, and it, I don't know, maybe this is surprising. In the, in the 1950s and 1960s, in all of the feast meeting minutes, the priests and the men themselves were still very much concerned with money. There was, a, there was a solicitations committee 
Um, and the head of the committee and the priest would always, you know, they would try the men for a poor showing and fundraising. Um, and they would always be strategizing on how to get more men out there, how to, I don't know, sell more raffles, how to bring more people in, how to make more money. And I think even before the 1950s and 60s, um, when the Giglio and the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel were combined, money still really mattered. So if we remember Sapanara kind of going door to door, trying to raise a little bit of money for the feast, he's buying land, he's flipping the land to try to make more money to open this parish. Um, and then when the Italian community kind of outgrew that first church and they needed to build a bigger, better church, they were again, raising a few, a couple hundred thousand dollars. They were having fairs and picnics um, and plays to try to raise money. And so again, I think, this is part of the institutional reality of um, a religious community. And in this church in particular, we just see it in such a overt way. So there are some ways where, I don't know, maybe we would want to say, okay, this church might be more concerned about money because of development and gentrification and, you know, cha urban changes. But we kind of see that's been stable um, throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. I think maybe some of the broader narratives around that change, um, but money is always, is always such an important part of the conversation around feast planning. Also, we can see from these, these structures that they're, they take a lot of money to produce too from the structures to the t-shirts to like all of the things that need to be um, made and brought in. Yeah, they need to be bringing in money and, and making it. Um, there is a, there's a thing called the century board at the parish where essentially, again, if you, if you just like walk by casually this church, you would see a big brown board outside where they have all of the names of sponsors up throughout the year. And these are all sponsors, families, people, businesses um, that have given money to help the church out. So that's very clearly visible, even just on the facade um, of the church. One of the ways that they bring in this money uh, is the questua. Um, and that was a, a more outward facing uh, homosocial uh, activity. Um, and at times it that was one of the few parts in the book where I started to get uncomfortable, um, not because of you, but because of uh, some of what was going on. But uh, tell us about the, the quest. Yeah, so the quest happens the Saturday, so the day before Giglio Sunday. Um, so the quest happens, right? Everybody wakes up in the morning and different crews go out to different parts of the neighborhood. So there is a north side crew that stays around the kind of Bedford Avenue area of Williamsburg. And then there's a south side crew um, that goes on the other side of the BQE to where more, more of the Italian, Italian-American population is. And then there's a Greenpoint crew that literally just goes to the Polish neighborhood of Greenpoint. So what they do is that they, they have vans full of blessed bread, like literal bread loaves. Um, and they walk through the streets kind of handing out blessed bread, um, sometimes handing it out, sometimes, you know, collecting dollars in exchange for these bread loaves. So the Questua is supposed to 
kind of spread the word about the feast, spread the word about the dance of the Giglio, invite people to come in. What the Questua also is, is kind of a roving party. Um, every crew has its own flavor. So the Southside crew, the pastor, most often goes on that um, leg of the quest. And that is more family oriented. So children, um, you know, mothers, more women on that crew. The Greenpoint crew is kind of like a party crew and the Northside crew is kind of like a party crew. Um, so essentially Questua means begging. And so people are kind of begging for money for the church. This reminds me, I didn't put this in the book, but this reminds me a little bit of Peter Sapanara, like trying to raise money for the church too. So imagine it's like Saturday morning, um, in sleepy Williamsburg. Nobody's really up yet. And walking through the middle of the street is a brass band, a police escort, a huge crew of guys with bread loaves. Um, it's, it's an interesting sight. One thing that happens, um, during the quest is that, you know, guys are hanging out with their friends, they're drinking scotch, they're smoking cigars. And I always find, and Rob, I, I see this in what, you know, in your reaction too, this makes people uncomfortable, right? Like every time I shared chapters and stuff about the quest before this was, um, published, people would be like, what, what's Catholic about this? Like, why is this really Catholic? Um, and it's really interesting because of the raucousness, because of the drinking, because of the partying. Um, maybe there is also some like haranguing of people on the street to give, to give money. There's lot, there's lots of, um, that they see this as kind of good natured fun. Outsiders might see this, um, in some ways as like harassment or disruption of, um, some sort. So people feel uncomfortable about this. Um, they're like, why, why is this Catholic? So I told one of the guys one day, I was walking with the South Side, I was walking with the South Side crew. And I was like, you know, every time I present this to people or at workshops, they're like, what, what is Catholic about this? And he looked at me like dumbfounded. And he was like, this is literally begging for money for the church. Full stop. And I'm like, you're right. Like, yes. Okay. And again, this is, this goes back to what I was saying. Like anything that's happening in the frame of church survival, making money for the church, keeping the parish alive, anything in there can be sacralized, can be seen as um, devotional. And it is, it is devotional. It's like, hey, I'm going to walk for six hours on a hot July morning and give my time to give, trying to get people to buy bread who do not want this. Um, and there's lots of tensions too. If anybody knows about Williamsburg being a trendy place like brunch, you know, oat milk, gluten-free, they make fun of a lot of, um, I don't know, they make fun of the hipsters. I feel like hipster is antiquated at this point. <laughs> they make fun of hipsters, they make fun of gentrifiers and newcomers. Um, and so again, this is both an act of goodwill and charity, at the same time, an act of reclaiming the streets sometimes an act of like poking fun, antagonizing, um, whether purposely or not purposely, um, antagonizing uh, gentrifiers and newcomers on um, those very streets. So my thing here 
is they're seeing this as an act of goodwill and charity. But for us, um, for readers or onlookers of this event, what if we didn't see the drunkenness and partying and carrying on as happening despite the religious nature of it or kind of intention with the religious nature of it and instead saw it as the very Catholic part of this or somehow enabled by the Catholicism of this event. And so we see this entire feast, the planning, the community, et cetera, gives men a space to be among other men. It gives men a space to construct masculinity. Um, it provides a certain sort of jocular community that again is reverent and irreverent at the same time. And all of this is allowed and sanctioned under the umbrella of Catholicism. And it is also um, allowed and sanctioned by the presence of police escorts and the permits that are needed for this. Um, so yeah, the Questua, the Questua can be, some of the, some of the crews can be um, rowdy and they, they see it as all in good fun. And of course, they see it as making money for the church. In years, in recent years, they, of course, like they have problems with people not carrying around cash. You know, they're like, hey, you want to buy some bread? This bread is a dollar. And people are like, I don't have any money. Um, so more recently, they've gotten those like dip the dip jars with the, cre the credit card readers. I, I don't know if these have been successful yet. I don't know if people trust dipping yet, but this just speaks to the, the like technological savviness and innovation um, and the adaptations they make in order again, to be the most profitable they could. And I don't know, to create publicity um, around the feast. Yeah, no, as I was reading it, I was, uh, totally convinced uh, by by your explanation of how this is another form of, of devotion um, and and by their very uh, very pragmatic view of it we're begging for money for the church as you suggest uh, and at the times when when I suddenly became uncomfortable by this roving mob sort of as you said sort of getting times belligerent um, I stepped back and I think again your presentation allows us to be sensitive uh, within this context, they are facing this uphill battle for survival. And where we might see perhaps uh, cruel harangues, uh, perhaps we see desperation. Um, and and as, as you suggested, uh, uh, trying to reclaim the streets, um, not in sort of a, a coded nasty way, but more of a, we can't afford to exist any more way um, in this world. I mean, the way you describe Williamsburg uh, at various moments, uh, anybody who's been will, will buy in. But I think one of, the, one of your great lines is when you refer to it as a series of photo ops, as much a hashtag as a place, a neoliberal dreamscape. And, and so you, you start to suddenly have more sympathy uh, for uh, even the most perhaps outlandish or, or at times it's, it's not as mean-spirited as, as it may seem superficially. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you do a really good job of, of capturing that. I love when they go to Greenpoint and look for the old Polish ladies. Um, I, my wife has family in Greenpoint, Polish uh, Catholics. And, and um, it's, I'm, I'm, I have to ask now whether they've uh, ever crossed paths. I'm sure they gave money if they did. Uh, but anyway, uh, it, it is the, the way you present it sort of, 
as you said in the introduction too, you know, you, you when they're sympathetic and unsympathetic. You, you yeah, exactly. And you can see, I mean, during the quest, there is, I don't know, there, there is this strength in numbers and this power in numbers. And they know, you can see that even the, even the men who no longer live in Williamsburg, they feel a sense of ownership over the streets. Like they can walk, they can walk on any block and see, you know, your generic condo and say, okay, I know, I know exactly what used to be here before, or I know my mom and my aunt and my second cousin lived here, or I know what kind of shop used to be here. And so it is also, I don't know, a sort of memory process, memory making, or like excavation almost of what once was there as they're walking through um, these streets. So I think there, are, there is this kind of nostalgia, this emotional resonance they have with these places. And then of course the dissonance of things being gone, new people being in those spaces instead. And so for all the times where they feel victorious um, about spreading the word, about raising money, about selling out of bread, there are also times where they feel defeated. You know, they'll walk into a business after business or approach person after person. And the person's like, I literally don't care about this church thing you're doing. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even eat bread. They're like, you know, people used to care and they do not care anymore. Um, and so you know, they, there's a palpable sense of that um, sometimes as well. Yeah. A very different um, sort of uh, travel through the streets is the line of the march, um, which is uh, not a homosocial space, right? There's, there's a lot, there's families, um, any kid holding up a sign that says, congratulations, dad, daddy is always, always going to get me every time. Um, and uh, tell us about that and how um, it's really part of this, the generational nature of, of what you're describing. Yeah, so the line of the march happens the morning of Giglio Sunday. So everybody wakes up super early in the morning and essentially the community goes on a procession throughout Williamsburg, picking up all of the capos at their homes. So some of these are their actual homes. Some capos either live in Long Island or live in Queens and don't have homes in Williamsburg, so they use somebody else's house. Um, so essentially, all of these houses are decorated. They're Italian Americana decorated. Um, streamers, flags, pictures of the Giglio, you know, window paintings of the Giglio, huge signs that say the men's name, congratulations, daddy, congratulations, capo, congratulations, apprentice capo, like whatever, whatever level the man is at. Every capo has a special song. Um, so this could be like Yankee Doodle Dandy. This could be like an Ita Italian folk song. So the brass band essentially goes to each of these homes um, and is led kind of by the Turk. So the Turk gets picked up. The Turk has his sword and leads the brass band, um, you know, to the home. And the band plays, plays the special capo song. Um, and the rest of the community, so men, women, children, families, I would say this is a super family-centric event. Um, so families will stand outside the house and the capo comes out to confetti and he has his cane. Um, and often he comes out toting if he has young children or like a baby, he'll tote the baby. So often generations are on display um, during the line of the march. 
Um, so family, you know, all the family members will come out um, of the homes. And then what happens is that each capo is specially blessed by the priest. So the, each capo is sprinkled um, with holy water and just comes out to a loving celebratory crowd at each of the homes too. Um, there is kind of like a breakfast setup. And so largely it is the duty of um, the Kappa's wives to set up the homes, to decorate the homes, to prep the breakfast, to get everything ready for this kind of march of honor to the church. And then as, you know, this crowd of course gets bigger and bigger as, as the morning goes on and people, you know, are wearing, as I mentioned, like the shirts with the Kappa's name, shirts with the Turk's name. And so you can really see, I don't know, the little clusters of families and kind of networks here. And then everybody processes to mass. And the capos are especially celebrated during mass. The band comes in, they like tote San Paulino, um, his statue down the aisle of the church. Then of course, Giulio Sunday mass happens. It's the biggest mass of the year literally standing like standing room only it's so hard to get a pew seat for this mass um so standing room mass and then after that the dance of the julio can happen now not everybody can aspire um to be a capo and to ascend this hierarchy uh, and while a lot of this story is really exciting and, and i think we're sympathetic uh, to, to this community and we're, and we're rooting for them and, and we're, we're really pulled into it and, and compelled by it. Uh, there are some, some sad stories of those who are left out. If you could talk a bit about that, about who's included and who's not and what that tells us about this world. Yeah, so I would say, and if we've heard in this conversation, you know, talk about children, ideas about blood or ideas about generations, you kind of can't have, heterosexuality is part of all of these um, things and all of these discourses. And so, as I mentioned during the line of the march, what's, what is really on display for not all capos, but for most of them is that they are fathers and grandfathers and they have produced generations of Catholics that are committed to this parish and committed to this feast. So what we see here is that men Men are not only bearers of tradition in terms of literally bearing the gilio on their shoulders, but they also are kind of understood as a node um, in like this parish's history, this, this feast history, um, and the kind of generational or reproductive um, survival of this place. So yeah, heterosexuality is on display uh, kind of all the time especially during the line of the march. And so there are men at the feast who do not conform to this. And in the book, I talk about an example of a, um, a gay capo who was kind of ousted, was very much ousted um, from this position of honor, even though like everyone else, he had given his life, he had worked, he had done all of the things that you're supposed to do. Um, eventually he finds himself not on, you know, lists to give lifts. He finds himself kind of excised from the duties of capo. Um, 
and pushed out, of course, because of the Catholic Church's views about um, homosexuality. So we see that for all of the kind of beautiful, intimate um, community, there is also the ugliness of exclusion here um, and the upholding um, of certain forms of heterosexuality as central, even though it's not necessarily, nobody's overtly saying this, but in the exclusion of uh, men who aren't straight, they kind of are, um, that heterosexuality seems to be important to capo manhood at the feast. Um, I will say that eventually this, this capo did get, he did get lifts, but still knows and feels that sense, you know, felt that sense of exclusion um, throughout. So yeah, there is any homosocial space, um, any space where men, you know, are together needs to be protected um, by some sort of boundary making. And if we look at the feast as a place where men spend all their time, or even the gilio as a place where men are literally like in close proximity, touching, sweating together. Um, what we find, of course, is boundaries around sexuality that enable and enable that closeness um, and make it make it okay. Um, there were other uh, groups who uh, might not be as in uh, as the uh, heterosexual Italian American Catholic men. Uh, some of them uh, very devout uh, Catholics. Um, I'm interested. You know, you talk about the fact that other historians have looked at Italian American Catholics in East Harlem and said, well, they were troubled by the arrival of Puerto Ricans to New York uh, as fellow Catholics, but not so much by Haitians whom they sort of welcomed. Um, and you tell a more complicated story in Williamsburg. So talk about the relationship between uh, this community and the Haitian community, which is also part of this community, but maybe in a different way. Yeah. Um, so during the summer, even though this would seem maybe like an Italian-American, Italian-centric event, there are lots of Haitian and Haitian-American devotees that are not necessarily from Williamsburg, but come from other parts of Brooklyn, um, maybe like Flatbush, Canarsie. So Haitians have, Haitian Catholics have a devotion to Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And there is a big procession um, that happens in Haiti um, on July 16th. And so these Italian parishes, the one in East Harlem, this one in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, offer spaces to go on procession, spaces to interact with and honor um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel. This has become more prominent since around the 1980s in Williamsburg, and there is a Creole mass that the church hosts um, as well. So I would say there, there are tons of Haitian devotees and they walk on, they especially walk on the processions, they'll go to novenas, they'll go to masses. I will say that there is all there the same way that there was exclusion around sexuality. I think there is also um, exclusion around race. 
So from the outside, this, it looks like, okay, people are coming together, Catholics of different races, and they're sharing a saint. And that's what other scholars have said about these events. Look at the diversity of this event. Everybody's coexisting. They are all, they have a mutual love and devotion to um, the Virgin Mary under this specific title. But it's when you hang out in some of these more backstage spaces that you hear um, exclusionary discourses and critiques of um, Haitian Catholic practices. So if in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, Italians were thought by, you know, American priests, American bishops, um, Irish Catholics, not to be good American Catholics, right? So in magazines and, you know, monthlies like America or in even Jacob Reese would write about Catholic feasts, um, people would look at Italian Catholics and be like, oh, look, they're doing, they're doing weird things. They're kissing their statues. They're talking to them. This is kind of, this is beautiful, but also kind of exotic. This seems superstitious. Um, you know, they'll say things like, or they would say things like, oh, Italians, they'll go on saints processions and they'll go to shrines and they'll do all this stuff, but they won't actually come to mass or they won't give money um, to the church. So there were these thoughts that Italian Catholics, they weren't doing Catholicism right. Um, and today I would say Italian Americans rehearse and kind of rehash all of those discourses that were once laid upon them um, onto Haitian and Haitian American Catholics. So they'll look at these practices and say, okay, look, oh, they're touching the statue. They're kissing the statue. They're leaving notes. They're, you know, they're speaking, they're speaking to statues and we don't, we don't do that stuff. It's not that clear. Like, I think these communities have the very same sorts of practices, um, but we see, and I talk about this in the book as Catholic propriety, um, Italian Americans can shore up this idea that they're kind of good American Catholics by constructing um, Haitian and Haitian American Catholics as superstitious or doing things differently um, than they do. There's, there's kind of like that intra-Catholic boundary making. So even though you'll see, again, everybody's on, everybody's on a procession, there are discourses of difference um, being actively constructed in different spaces um, at the feast where they're, they're othering people in the same way that Italians were othered in the past. We see it throughout immigration history and, and Catholic American history. All these groups seem constantly to be at war with each other and, and often at their mutual peril. Um, but what's interesting is some of the men that you were talking to in the back rooms um, behind the scenes recognized that it would be at their own peril not to do better with the Haitian community. Um, and so there, there is a complexity even to this story, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there is a sense the Creole Mass is the fullest Mass of all of them. It is also probably one of the Masses that makes a lot of money on the feast day. Um, so there's, there's usually hand-wringing, especially among older people in the community, that, oh, everybody shows up for the Giglio lift. Everybody shows up for the night lift. 
everybody shows up for all these things that are fun, but nobody's really coming to the shrine. Nobody's walking on the July 16th processions for Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Um, and so there's this sense among some people that the like focus on the Madonna or the Virgin Mary is kind of lessening over time. And there's a worry about this. What they do know is even though, even if many Italian Americans won't show up for these processions, there are tons of Haitians who will walk on these processions and make and make them make them full, make them possible, make them look like the devotional ceremonies and performances that they are supposed to be. And so some people will say things like, oh, the Haitians are our only, only hope, or, you know, we need the Haitians for these processions or else these processions are going to be empty. And so I think there is a, there's a desire there's a desire to bring devotees in, but there's also a distancing. I will say that this probably, again, I've seen some of this decrease over time, those that like distancing effort, but it is very much um, still there. And I think, and we can talk about the men's reactions to the book um, a, a bit later, but they read, I mean, they some of them read it. They read that chapter and they recognized that they needed to do better um, in uh, in seeing my analysis and in seeing, I don't know, seeing some of their, their actions back. Um, and so, yeah, Haitians, they are constructed as particularly pious and particularly devoted. Obviously, there's some racialization happening here too. Um, but yeah, there's this come, but we still control this thing. And you are devotees here, but then you leave. Um, I'd love to talk about, actually, um, I was going to ask you if you, seems like you made some meaningful friendships along the way here. And I was going to ask if you're still in touch with these men and if they've read the book and what they thought. And so you've, you've uh, opened the door. Uh, so uh, let's hear about that a bit. Yeah. So I would say um, a good number of the like main characters in the text have read it. They were, you know, they had it pre-ordered, they got it. Some of them read it within like the first 24 hours of getting it um, or texting me throughout. I would say largely the reaction was favorable. I think one of the things that's scariest um, being an ethnographer is knowing that you spent all the, you, I spent six years with them. You spent all this time with people and then you have to take those relationships and you have to and those experiences and those memories, and you have to put them in a book on a page, and that feels so permanent. I think one of the other things that we do as ethnographers is that we make events out of stuff that just happens in passing. So a little conversation, a little comment, a, a little action becomes a moment of analysis, a moment to stop, a moment to spend pages on in a text. So there was some worry on my part um, over what they were going to think of it. Um, but I think that largely they saw themselves reflected in these pages. Um, I know some of them had kind of emotional experiences reading about themselves um, and appreciated that. I think in a community where lineage and history matters so much, they have a sense of the next generation is going to be able to read about them and their work and their, you know, the stuff in the basement or things like that. 
um, in this book. So I know for some, for some men, this is the way, like, it's weird to read about themselves, but also this is going to be, uh, like, they'll, they'll be legendary in certain, in certain ways. Um, I think, of course, there are probably different, there were difficult parts to read about, like the exclusion we were just talking about. Um, and as I mentioned, especially some of the, the younger generation of men, the millennial generation, um, maybe we're not privy to uh, some of the exclusion that was happening among the capos because they don't hold those positions of power. So they didn't know, they didn't know those stories um, and kind of found them upsetting. Um, and then especially with the uh, Haitian devotees, I know some men, they're like, okay, now I see this and now I think we have to do better. Like I'm learning something from this text. As you mentioned in the beginning, I really, I did try to be sensitive and loyal to their experiences. Um, I didn't want them to pick up this book and not be able to recognize themselves or to feel like I went in drastically different directions with their stories. Of course, there are people who are like, hey, you know, you put, you put way too much in this book. Um, which is going to happen. Again, it's really weird to read about yourself. Um, even for me, I am a character in the book sometimes, and it's weird to it's weird to read about my past self in this text or what I was doing or feeling this many years ago. Um, so, but yeah, I, we'll see. I think when I go back, we'll see um, the broader conversations that happen um, around the book. But so far, it's been, it's been okay. It's been good. I wonder, um, did they, were they able to have this uh, event last summer in the midst of the pandemic and more broadly speaking for a, a parish that's been beleaguered by at least potential financial catastrophe, how have they fared more broadly during the pandemic? Yeah. So this, I would say this parish is very savvy. Um, they already had all of the infrastructure in place for live stream masses. Um, I know some churches were like scrambling to do this. Um, the feast is always, the feast is always live stream. Masses are live stream. The novenas are live stream. So all of that was already in place. Um, and so I think that they were able to kind of turn and do that quite easily. Um, they're also savvy in that they set up a page where people could buy Feast merchandise, Our Lady of Mount Carmel and San Paulino masks, um, and give money through PayPal. And so they were they were doing stuff like that. Um, I haven't heard any rumblings about the finances of the church. Obviously, I think people came through with support. Um, but there's lots, and one thing I didn't get to write about in the book is that there's lots of there's new development, new buildings going up right around the church. Um, and they kind of like every obstacle that they've gone through in the 20th century. I didn't get to talk about all of these, um, but, you know, they had a beautiful new church building that was knocked down to build the, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, the BQE. Um, so they kind of see, they're like, okay, things have been difficult and city policy has been antagonistic before. And you know what? We're still here. So they kind of see themselves as like, hardy and they have you know they're like we're, we're here we're surviving that's it like don't feel don't feel bad for us kind of um 
kind of deal. So they weren't able to have the feast last year, um, which I know was such a huge blow. There was, I think, lots of mourning happening about that on social media. What they did do, um, they had a like smaller, the Giglio, well, they lifted a Giglio, but it was, of course, a smaller crowd um, during Columbus Day weekend. And they hailed it as like, this was the only Giglio in the world in um, 2020. Uh, they are planning a feast for um, this summer. I don't know what scale that's going to be able to happen on, but they did recently announce the dates of the feast. So they're imagining something that hopefully will be bigger and better than ever, um, but we'll see. I know, I know it's really difficult for the community not to have um, the feast because the last time the last time that the feast wasn't able to happen was after World War II. So, or, you know, during that period. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, you mentioned the BQE and, and I was thinking that this is a community that has a right to take pride in their resilience. If they were able to bounce back after crossing swords with Robert Moses, they can probably <laughs> deal with pretty much anything as, as probably any of our viewers will know. Um, You'd call them, in fact, uh, intransigent, resistant, even in the face of gentrification. And um, at a time when so much, especially of that part of Brooklyn, whether it's Polish Greenpoint or Italian Williamsburg, seems to be sort of evaporating. There is something, noting all of the complexities, there is something incredibly uh, beautiful and inspiring about this story, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I was, so of course, in like my archival work, I've uncovered lots of historical ironies. So I mentioned that this church is on North 8th and Havemeyer, right? That's where it is now. It used to be on North 8th and Union Ave. Um, and after, so after Peter Sapanara built his little church and then the community expanded, they raised money. They built this like beautiful Romanesque church with a hundred foot campanile and stained glass and beautiful paintings inside. And then it was like around for under 20 years before it needed to be taken down for the BQE. Um, but as so I tell, you know, I tell them some of the stuff I've uncovered in the archives, which is that Sapanara initially bought the parcel of land that the church is on now. So if he would have just kept that land instead of flipping it for money, maybe they would have never had to have their church dismantled for the BQE. Um, so I was telling these stories and one of the guys was like, oh, we're cursed. I think we're cursed. <laughs> um, and right now, right across the street from the rectory and the church, there is a like 11 story co-living space going up. In 2019, what, that plot of land, which used to be a metal stamping factory, was sold for $41 million to a developer. Um, and, you know, they're building a co-living space and there are going to be amenities and all that stuff. But it really is like a big shadow of construction um, on the parish. The other funny thing that I uncovered in the archives was that the church tried to buy that very plot of land that is being developed now. Um, in the 1960s, they wanted to buy it for $120,000. They were like, we're going to turn this into a social hall or religious hall. The Bishop of Brooklyn told them $120,000 is an outlandish price. You're not allowed to buy this. And of course, in 2019, it sells for $41 million. Um, but yeah, they look, they see, and this has happened. This I saw this throughout my fieldwork. Things are changing. Like 
condos, every, like everything is changing about the built environment of Williamsburg. And they see all of these and they are like, okay, we're still here and we are going to stay here. And when other people start wringing their hands, when priests start saying, I don't know, we might have to scale down. They're like, that's not, that's not who we are. Like this needs to be big and loud and here because we're here and we're not going anywhere. And so one of the things that I see is that especially around gentrification, they are like, they're resistant in some way, but gentrification also helps them create and tell these sacred stories about themselves. So they're like in the 1940s, Robert Moses was trying to take us down. Um, and now they're building buildings up to the sky and we're still here um, and we are going to survive. And this feast is going to be the engine that allows us to do that. Um, so yeah, they're dialoguing with gentrification as well. I think that's great. Um, do you plan uh, when all of the pandemic is over uh, at some point to go back and be a part of this again? Yeah, I feel, I, I told you all I spent years um, with them and I kind of feel like the feast is going to be a part of my life. I'm always going to be called there, like not just beckoned by them, but like by, by myself or this pull um, I have to the community, to the festivities. Um, so yeah, I will be back whenever, whenever it happens next, I'll be there. I'm looking forward to going and visiting in, in a year or two when all of this is safe. I mean, it, it's largely because it's just such a fascinating story and largely because of the way you tell the story. Um, I'm so grateful, Alyssa, that you joined us today to talk about your book. Again, I can't, I can't praise it highly enough. Um, the, the writing is uh, beautiful and evocative. The analysis is uh, compelling and profound, but, but also intensely humane and sensitive. Um, and so, again, I can't recommend it enough, uh, Lifeblood of the Parish uh, from NYU Press. I had to check the spine real quickly. Uh, and so uh, thank you so very much, Alyssa. For uh, thank you. This conversation, yeah, I love, I just love talking about all this stuff. Um, and I appreciate your kind words. Oh, well, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks.